You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Modern Musicology. My name is Alan, and I'm here with my co-host, Anthony. Hello. And Rob. Howdy. And we are joined by a very special guest this week. We have songwriter, musician, solo artist, former member of the Aquanetas, Stephanie Seymour. Howdy, everybody. Hey, it's so nice to have you with us. Thank you so much. So glad to be here. Well, we have got so much stuff to talk to you about tonight. I'm really looking forward to hearing all about your career and some of your awesome stories. <laughs> um, before we dive into that, though, I just want to talk really quickly, especially since we have a second drummer on the show this week. Um, just, I mean, less than two days ago, we had the sudden and very unexpected passing of Taylor Hawkins of the Foo Fighters. And I just want to, I just wanted to talk for a minute about, I mean, that just blew me away and like, i know it did everybody horrible. else who knows him and his bandmates and everything but holy smokes nobody saw just, that one coming i don't think you know no mm -hmm. i mean from what i understand they were in budapest like literal hours away from going on stage at a festival yeah unbelievable and like not just his amazing drumming talent but i mean he was such a great singer and and from all accounts just a great guy so Yes, terrible. exactly, exactly. So super loss to the music industry and especially for us drummers. I mean, he is he he was sort of like the consummate rock star slash music fan, because as big as he and the band became, he never lost sight of, you know, honoring his heroes and uh, identifying the influences that he had and everything that he did was about you know his joy of the life that he's living and i just think that's amazing and i'm so so glad that we had you know as long as we had with him yeah it's just oh it's just tragic it really is like that is a definition of tragedy right there yeah I, i'm i'm so bummed that i never got to see the foo fighters because now i will see them but he won't be there it's one of those things. I've never been a huge Foo Fighters fan, but when I have heard their music, you can always hear the talent there, and particularly in his drumming. Yeah. And it says a lot that he is good enough to be the drummer for a band that Dave yeah. Grohl was in, <laughs> and no one ever thought, hold up, why is Dave Grohl not on drums? He was good enough to actually stop people from thinking about that. Right. So... Yeah, yeah, huge, huge loss uh, to the industry, to, to his fans, and of course to his family. So I loved in their shows, they would always do some cover, whether it be a Queen song or whatever, that Taylor would get up and grab the mic and Dave would go sit down behind the, the kit and they were equally strong in both positions. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Huge, so, huge loss. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, we're just devastated by the loss of Taylor Hawkins and, you know, condolences to his friends and his family and his bandmates. 
Before we jump into the rest of the show, though, uh, to to shift tone a little bit here, Anthony and Rob, you both had the chance to see Sparks this past week in separate places at separate shows, but you both saw them. So I'm dying to hear your impression of that concert. It was my first concert back uh, in the new normal, as they say, <laughs> in, in Chicago. Um, I've pretty much gone to every music venue in the city, but I'd not been to the Copernicus Center. Um, it's in Northwest Chicago. It is the basically it used to be the Gateway Movie Theater, um, and it was bought and renovated and turned into like a Polish community center. So like, it's where they normally have polka bands and just a wide variety of like uh, programming related to the Polish community of Chicago, right? But literally, there every venue in Chicago was booked, right? So um, we 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 found the venue, which was. Uh, a bit of a challenge because it's almost uh, it's almost in Jupiter, but uh, it felt absolutely euphoric to get back to a concert, um, and I'm glad that I picked this one to be the one I went back to back to live music for because I wanted it to be something that was fun and light and would make me forget about everything going on. And the best thing about Sparks is one, they make you forget about everything that's going on in the outside world. Two. I don't know how they do a set list from that catalog, but the, the set list was really great. It all flowed. It worked. They had a very genuine banter. Um, and they really played off of that image well, where, you know, Ron is pretty much sitting the whole show, and then they have a couple songs. He'll come out, and there's one where he just goes, yeah. And he goes, yeah, you know, for a part of the song. And then he comes out um, doing music that you can dance to. He does. A, he gets up takes off his coat, folds it, sets it down, does a little dance, goes back over, unfolds it, puts the coat back on, that is the keyboard part, right? So it's all the silly things that you want in a Spark show, but it's also lively and entertaining. And the crowd was incredibly cool, which is also great. Um, and I believe this was the smallest venue on the tour, um, which was also pretty great. And But they went on about 30 minutes late. So I don't know if Anthony got to see them do Amateur Hour in Chicago, mm -hmm. which has been on their set list up until this point. But yeah, they no. went on a little late. So It looks like from set lists, Amateur Hour was played on maybe the first three or four shows and then yeah. came off. Um, and they just haven't played it since. But um, yeah, I saw them in Atlanta uh, at a venue called The Eastern, which is a relatively new venue. For those who are familiar with Atlanta, it's in Reynoldstown, which is that little area between Grant Park and East Atlanta Village. Uh, really, really nice venue. It's because it's so new, it's so nice and clean, which, you know, you go to some venues and the floors are sticky and uh, sometimes you want that. But coming <laughs> like like Rob, I, you know, this is my first show back since the pandemic started. So I was grateful for something that felt very clean. Um, the band asked the audience to wear masks. And I would say there was probably 95%-ish mask wow. compliance, which wow. in the South, yeah. you, know, you don't necessarily expect when we've had so many governors turn around and say, why are you still doing this? So that was really great. It felt safe. And as Rob said, great banter from the band, really great energy, particularly from two septuagenarians. I mean, they're going on stage and... They've still got it. And in Atlanta, Ron did his dance during number one song in heaven. Okay. And mm. um, yeah, again, took his jacket off, folded it, did his dance, put it back on, 
straightened everything up and then got back to the keys <laughs> and and yeah it it was just so much fun it was lighthearted it was a little bit silly and you could just feel the love for the band in that audience and what was really cool was it's such a diverse audience as well you know go, going i wasn't quite sure what the kind of age range would be the I've been to shows like Marillion or Stephen Wilson, where I'm the youngest guy there by about 20 years. And virtually everyone in that audience is a white male over the age of 55. And um, this was a little bit of everything. And I guess between Annette coming out, the Sparks Brothers documentary, the album they did with Franz Ferdinand a few years ago, that's opened them up to a much younger audience than you would expect. And you could just see everyone was having a great, great time. And there was just so much love for the band there. So it was a really good show to go back to and a really good time. I really would be curious to know how many of the people in the audience came to this because of the documentary, like people who had never heard of them before. And it was the documentary that introduced them. And I, I would really be fascinated to know what that percentage is. I was actually talking to one of my Dragon Con friends, um, on Facebook afterwards, and she came to them through Annette. Mm. She saw Annette and was like, oh, this is really good. Oh, the soundtrack was all done by one band. Oh, mm. there's a documentary about them. <laughs> and then she watched the documentary and then just got sucked mm -hmm. into everything else. That's so cool. See, yeah. what's interesting about the Chicago show is that roughly everyone there, I'd say 90% of the audience was roughly in my age bracket or older. And there were very few kids. There were like maybe maybe 20 people i would have said that were under 40 really? um it was a much older show but again they had like they were playing the same night as you know car seat headrest and uh like seven like the eagles and journey and billy idol like they had like nine nine different shows in the oh, city. all on the same night in this yeah oh. <laughs> that's crazy oh, but you know that's know. that's the result of a pandemic where everybody is trying to tour all at the same time now yeah there's a yeah. lot of overlap in Atlanta, the only other act the same night that I'm aware of was Bieber. And somehow I don't think there's a lot of crossover in fandoms between Sparks <laughs> and Justin Bieber. I didn't know Justin Bieber was even here. <laughs> yeah. I only found out about it when I saw some of my um, uh, college friends on Instagram at that show. And I was like, uh, I think I went to the better one, probably. Probably. It's like, it's like you're dead to me. Yeah. <laughs> hey, now, I don't judge in that way, Rob. I'm but yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we are going to take a little break to promote one of the fellow podcasts on our network. And we will be back in about 30 seconds and we'll have our discussion with Stephanie Seymour. See you on the flip side. Hey, you know how you don't have any friends? It's fine. The Flopcast will be your friend. Your weird podcast friend. Join us on the Flopcast every week for a silly conversation about cartoons, music, comic books, chickens, and obscure 80s pop culture trivia that no one, literally no one, could possibly care about. Find us at Flopcast.net and on the ESO network. It'll be our little secret. And thank you so much for tuning in uh, to our podcast. We're joined by Stephanie Seymour, who's our very special guest uh, this week. We are talking about women in music. And um, I first met Stephanie in 1988 when Long I was working. Ago. I know when I was working in college radio and you were my Island Records rep. And yep. um, 
through the years. Uh, we've talked about all different aspects of music, and I've heard you be both uh, exuberant and frustrated about working in the industry. And um, I knew you played in a band and loved music, so I thought you'd be great to have in here. And uh, I also know that probably I think I spent more time uh, in your office hanging out with a record rep than I did any other rep. Um, <laughs> I know, right? And I, I remember, I remember going to the cages at Virgin and just emptying out the promo swag. Um, <laughs> like, ooh, a box set. Ooh, another box. That set. was everybody's so, fun thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then, and then the Aquanetas broke, and I was really, really thrilled for you to have that happen. So, thank uh, yeah, that was. Thank exciting. you for, thank you for coming in. But I'm also very happy for you because you have a a new single out called "There Was a Time," uh, which you've just done, and that's dropped. And you can talk about that in a second. And also, "There Are Birds," a really great uh, record that you did as well in 2019. Thank, yes. So my yeah, birding obsession. <laughs> <laughs> my bird watching obsession. Yeah, I think making a concept record about bird watching is is pretty awesome. So <laughs> yeah, I mean that was really um it kind of came to me all in a flash that that album. You know, I didn't I didn't sit and plan that I was going to do that. It really was like a, a spark from above that just now speaking of sparks, but <laughs> <laughs> it was really just an inspirational moment where I had a song come to me for that one. And then I was just like, Oh my God, I'm making a record about birds. And sort of, it was like, it's like my rock and roll ode to birds and bird watching. And What was the first, I mean, you said that you, you had a song that just sort of yeah. came to you and that was the start. What was the first song? where did um, you start with? It, I just was sitting on my couch and the lyrics to the song Ruby Crown Kinglet came into to my head. I just wow. had this sort of like a little refrain going on and then I heard a melody and I really like it was one of those things where, you know, it was sort of like pulled out of the sky, the song. It just came mm. to me in like 45 minutes or so where I could just, I had the lyrics, I had the melody, I could hear it in my head like it was being played on the radio and it was just sort of that kind of inspiration. And I was like, oh, if I can do that, you know, I know I can make an album. And, it, mm -hmm. and it's such a good, I thought it was such a good idea, you know, that uh, I, I was just like, I yelled down to Bob, my husband. I was like, we're making a record about birds. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, okay, honey. He's like, okay, yeah, whatever. But we did. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So what is his involvement in your, in your process or in your recording? pretty much like there wouldn't be nothing without him because I don't play, you know, I play drums, right? So I don't play guitar. I don't play anything. I can't, there's no way for me to express what's in my head other than to sing it to him. He has to figure out like from all the possibilities of the chords that could be, you know, mm -hmm. play it on guitar. He's a great guitar player. Amazing. He used to be in winter hours. I don't know if you oh, guys. Okay. Yeah. So um, he, he's an amazing guitar player. He plays bass. And he's also, we've got our own studio, home studio, and he's a producer. So he does everything. And really he did, uh, you know, from the inception of, you know, this, every song, getting it out of my head and onto paper, mm. um, doing the demos with me, and then getting it to all the musicians who played on the album, including him and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and producing and then mixing and mastering. Well, not mastering Scott Anthony mastered the record, but. He did, he did pretty much everything. And he does that with all, <laughs> everything I create. That's what, what our process is pretty much. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. He, yeah, thank goodness for my husband. He's the best. <laughs> you you married well, it sounds I like. I did. <laughs> and the home studio helps too. 
yeah, especially whole, during the pandemic, because you can oh, still hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, because we were able. Well, there are birds was recorded before the pandemic, so yeah. we were able to get everybody mm. here in the studio. But yes, for like for example, for this song, uh, there was a time we really did. We sent it out, you know, to everybody. They recorded their parts, and we put it all together here. That's amazing. I am curious about something like uh, if you if you listen to guitar players, particularly guitar players, but also pianists or keyboardists, when they write a song, a lot of times it's like a riff that comes to them, you know, or like they're noodling around on the piano and like some phrasing or something suggests something to them. So I'm curious to know if as a drummer, if you have a different way of thinking about songwriting if it, if it sort of like conceptualizes itself in your head in a different way yeah i i th you know that's so that's a really good question and i was thinking about that a lot too because as i try to sing what's in my head to bob when there's nothing to when there's nothing behind my voice to give him a, um a, uh some idea of where i am <laughs> in in my own head there's so many chords he could choose from and more times than not, we don't have the same style really of, of um, you know, he, he comes from a more rootsy rock thing. I'm a little more poppy, whatever. So his choice is always inevitably different from my choice. So it was, it's, it's really kind of a laborious thing to have to try to get, you know, express what I mean. And I, and I think that maybe it gives me a little more leeway in my head because I don't have, uh, you know, I used to play piano. I used to play a little bit of things here and there, but I don't really know proper chord structure, proper, you know, what you're supposed to go to. So in my own head, I'll go to whatever I think, you know, whatever comes to me, if that makes any sense. There's totally. not, there's nothing that's like, it's not maybe your more usual, you know, musical progressions. Mm -hmm. So bearing that in mind, that it's not necessarily the traditional way of songwriting and that clearly you and Bob have a lot of back and forth kind of figuring it out how long like do you find that it takes you a long time to get from that initial idea to the finalized song or is that process relatively quick for you or does it depend based on the individual song another good question i feel like it, it kind of overall we our demo process is very long so you know we'll we'll work on we'll work on the front end so that at the back end for all the musicians is really easy and we can just get them to come in and do it. And they'll, we'll have it all down on tape, you know, of tape. <laughs> like I'm, I am a hundred years old. <laughs> we'll have it on a cassette tape for everybody. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. In my head, that's still where demos happen. They have to, I, I agree. otherwise it's yeah. not a real demo. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, it'll, it'll all be, worked out so that's where the the uh the hours really are logged i would say more more up up front and then and then once we really get going it it, it happens quicker and i'm also kind of a taskmaster i have to say and he would agree <laughs> and uh, you know i once i'm in that mode i just want to keep going and going yeah. going and getting it done mm -hmm. i wanted to sort of ask you how you got into the industry yeah, what I know you told me this the other day, but it's such a great story about how you got into the industry and sort of what made you decide you wanted to get into radio promotion. Well, I so obviously I was a musician since I was a, a kid, but mm -hmm. I I also knew that you know I probably needed a job, 
So um, when I was going to NYU, I, um, I had been a marketing major and I hated it. And I switched over to the music school, music business school. Since I had taken all of my business classes, I was able for two years just to focus on music. And one of the requirements was that you had to have credit uh, at, at like a real job, like a real company. You had to earn credits for your, for your degree. So my favorite band, and I'm going to offend either Anthony or Alan. I can't remember who it's doesn't Anthony. like you. It's, it's Anthony. Anthony. I'm sorry, Anthony, in advance. I My favorite band at the time was U2. And they and still one of my top favorite bands. So I, I called up Island Records, like cold call, like, hey, I need an internship. And um, uh, I, you know, they gave me an internship. I, my school was literally like three blocks away from Island. So it was perfect. I would just walk from class to, to Island. And um, I started out in, in production and sales as an intern. And um, later I went over to, to promotion because I kind of felt more pulled in that direction. But I was, I had run out of credits. Like I, I fulfilled my credits and um, I didn't want to leave and they didn't want me to leave. So they gave me a part-time job. I finished out school. And then as soon as I uh, graduated, they gave me the national college promotion manager job because John Suchak who was doing that job, he moved up to do like uh, modern radio, like modern rock radio, alter yeah. alternative radio. So that's how I got into it. And because um, of you too, Anthony. <laughs> I, so, Anthony she she totally you. called you out. Yeah. <laughs> so so um, I, for me, what really ruins you too is just Bono being on his high horse so much <laughs> of the time. I, musically, I actually don't dislike them that much. But yes, I can, I, you know, I can, I understand that. And I know that's a thing for a lot of people. So I, I get it. <laughs> Don't you think that horse is just really tired of being ridden for all these years? <laughs> this was like the unforgettable fire was out. Right, right. Like I, I worked on the Joshua Tree and Rattle and Hum. Like that was the cool, like that, those are, those are some yeah. records, you know? And wow. you, you have a great story. Uh, you two story you told me the other day that I think is is really cool and it really speaks to the power of uh, a woman at a label making a change, but also you had to kind of fight for that a little bit. Can you can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I was I was still an intern, I believe, at that point when was I was with working with my boss Lisa Lipton Lisa Lipkin, who was the head of production, and we used to get the test pressings for all records. We would get vinyl. We'd get you know we'd get forty fives and we'd get um full lengths and we would get cassettes and they'd all be test pressings and you have to listen to them, make sure that they sounded okay <clears throat> and give the approval. Um, and usually they were fine. Um, but, but we got the seven inch for where the streets have no name and we put it on and we're sitting there listening to it. It's like we're <laughs> sitting there looking for record player in the record company. We're sitting there and we're like, man, we're looking at each other. Like this sounds really weird. And it sounded really tinny and really, there was no bottom end to it. And when, like, even my, 19 year old years and could figure that out. And we were like, wow, we got to send this back. We got to send this back to them and tell them to remaster it, which we did. And like I said to Rob, you're welcome, everybody, for if whoever has a seven inch single for the Where the Streets Have No Name, that's uh, that's the, the better sounding one. <laughs> and um, we'll, we'll piggyback that with um, I, I know we talked when we talked the other day, you were talking about you had a David Bowie story. Oh yeah, that, that was a really 
that was so fantastic. Like my David Bowie, I have a few David Bowie stories, but that the the best one was when I was net. This is when I was at Virgin Records, and we were. Um, I was at, in video promotion at this point, and I would do all the college. Uh, college. I would do all the um, like local and regional shows around the country. That's who I was promoting to. And um, uh, we had a giant loft building uh, at Virgin Records. It was like the, the middle was all carpeted and all around the outside was those old wooden loft floors and all the offices surrounded, you know, the, the outside of the building in a way, the surrounded, you know, the, the square. Um, so I had this kind of cave in the back towards the corner and I was, it was a very open area with all my video machines set up. I had like a 20 foot long desk. It was just this like rustic old loft. So I kind of heard some foot, you could hear everything, you know, every step, every whatever. I rolled my chair out because I heard somebody coming down the hallway to me and I look up and it is David Bowie walking to me. And I look back because my boss is right behind me in her glass office. So I'm like, there's no way David Bowie's coming here for me. So I like rolled back in and I just put my head down and I just expected him to pass by. And he comes around the corner. He's like, are you Stephanie? And I'm like, God, yes, I am. (laughs) Are you David Bowie? Or am I dreaming? And and he's like, um, someone told me that I could come to you and get a few copies of, you could make me a few copies of my video. And I was like, I sure can, Mr. Bowie. What do I call you? And I started rolling off the videos from me, from for him. And we were sitting there watching, I think it was Thursday's Child. I think that was his, this, his single at the time. Wow. And he's looking at stuff on my desk. He's like picking up my pictures. He's like, is this your dad? Like we were like, ha- he was full on with me for like 10 minutes. And, I, and after that, he was just gone. It was like, nicest guy, like nicest down to earth guy with that little twinkle in his eye and that little mischievous grin. Like it was so awesome. Oh my gosh. I can't even. Yeah. (sighs) I couldn't even either. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in a Bowie tribute band. So like I am on the Bowie train hardcore. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So, you know, gosh, I know. That was yeah, one basically this podcast is all about Sparks and David Bowie. <laughs> pretty, pretty, much. pretty much. And you too. No. Just... <laughs> <laughs> well, it is now. So <laughs> um can can you talk a little bit about you know working in the industry as a female? Did you have any fights you had to struggle with or just general the, the work culture that you had to had to go through? As you know, you and I were talking about this the other day. I, I feel like working in the industry there there was pl- to me there was always plenty of women around which was fantastic i never thought to myself gee there's this is really male dominated in, in in terms of jobs and positions there was always like a lot of my counterparts at different labels were female um in the publicity departments there were almost if not always completely you know f- female run um anyway i don't know there's just many many good examples and many strong women, I think that I, you know, from what I could tell. Um, But when I look back, um, again, I said this to you, Rob, the other day, like when I look back at what I had to put up with uh, on a daily basis, just in terms of, and and some of these, you know, nobody did this, I think in, in in a malicious way, but, but it was just like the culture then. There was like 
the the lewd jokes, the the obnoxious hugging and kissing from you know people that you maybe didn't want to be hugged and kissed by every day <laughs> and you know the just pats on the butt like whatever just things like that that just definitely happened and it was I, I would always I would always just kind of go along with it that part of the thing was that I feel like people were conditioned you know that that was normal and so yeah I, I didn't really take offense but it didn't occur to me until really a long time late afterwards that that's not what we should have to deal with. And, um, you know, I, I, again, I think that a lot of people who did that at that time probably had a lot of self-reflection later on as well. Um, especially, you know, after the Me Too movement. And I think, you know, if you're any kind of introspective person and have some kind of you know, look at yourself, you know, I'm sure a lot of people felt bad about certain things in their lives and what they did and whatever. I'm lucky. I never had, I was never, you know, a victim of a really serious sexual assault. I was in a lot of positions uh, that um, I was uncomfortable with at certain times. And I removed myself from not at my record company. I'm just saying like, if I was at a club, if I was at, you know, on the road or whatever, there were definitely times when you know, being a female, you're in a more vulnerable, vulnerable position. Um, so I have mixed feelings because I also fed into that whole mindset. Like I made jokes. I did, you know, I played along with it, I guess, but, but looking, but, uh, you know, I, that's just how it was in a way. That's just how it was which is horrible to say, but that's just how it was. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where you either had to play the game or you would find yourself out very, very quickly, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, also knowing that most of these people were well-meaning and nice and my, and some were my friend, you know, they're my friends and I'm sure, and I'm not saying everyone did this. This is not, this is not to say that this, it was, you know, from everybody everywhere. Of course, there was people that didn't do that, you know, of course, but it was, um, it was just a really different time. Yeah. One of the things, you know, I, I hear now, because uh, I deal with a lot of uh, women that work at record labels and now marketing companies. Yeah. And the one constant that I've heard when you were doing your job that I hear through now is that the situation with pay mm -hmm. and sort of having a voice at the table, that that's still kind of in many ways an issue. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. I know for sure I was paid less than what my male counterparts were paid. I mean, a lot of it is, I think, you know, you do have to jump around to get paid what you want sometimes in, mm -hmm. in whatever industry you're in. But yeah, definitely. I think um, that was no doubt happening and I'm sure it still does. And I don't really know what the, what is the solution for that? I just, well, I don't have a solution for any of this. I think it's just talking about it, you know? Mm -hmm. it, you know, what's I, really weird is like, at first, my first reaction when I saw that, when I woke up and I saw like all the Me Too stuff that one, do you remember when you woke up and you saw all yep. the hashtags and everything? Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, this is almost, I feel weird to admit this, but my first reaction was Me Too. Like, of course, like it should be like me 
who hasn't or whatever. Like, it's just, it was so like, I can't believe this sat, like who hasn't been harassed, which is mm -hmm. horrible, right? That's a horrible thought, but it that's what I thought. And then I also thought like, why are people talking about this? Like what, why, I mean, it's, but then I realized that the only way that it, it can change, it's the only way is that mm -hmm. if it's out in the open rather than internalized by everybody um, and not have just like one person try to be an advocate or one person speak out or a small group, it has to be like everybody talking about it. It really does. And that's just what I learned too. You know, I had to learn as a woman. <laughs> I, grew, I grew up in the seventies and um, you know, the women's lib movement was like a hot thing at the time. And I remember the first time I heard some mention of the fact that women on average made like a third to half as much as any man for doing the same job. And I just, I was yeah. like, that cannot be true. That cannot be the case. Yeah. I don't understand. And I'm not saying this to make myself sound like no, no, but know, so progressively shocking. minded, but I, it just didn't make any sense to me. Right. That yeah. somebody and half of the population would just, it was just okay to not pay them. Yeah. That's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. It blew my little mind. I, I will tell you. Yeah. And, and to Stephanie's point, I think, even today, and I work in finance, and again, I think it's a similar situation. Women are still paid less than men. If you take a woman of a certain amount of experience at a certain age, you find some a man with the same experience and at the same age, there's going to be a discrepancy there. Yeah, That might come down to a number of reasons, but the fact is, in general, women tend to be a little underpaid. And the only way to change that is, as Stephanie said, to talk about it. And I think a lot of companies put a lot of emphasis in not talking to your peers about what you're being paid because that they is don't the truth. want they don't Good want point. everyone knowing that what's is going the on truth. here. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's such a good point. Yeah. <laughs> I actually that's um that I, I am was living that just like about a couple months ago in terms of I freelance now and I you know nobody really talks about that but I I so me and another freelancer started talking about it and it was just like, wait a minute, you're making what you're making what? And it was like, it inspired both of us to mm -hmm. let's go ask for a raise, you know, but uh, it, yeah, it's true. You have to talk. It has to be more out in the open. You know, I know people don't like to discuss what they make or whatever. I kind of don't really get that that much. I really don't care, but a lot of people do, but it should be more of like maybe in a general range, this is what people should be making if you do X, if you do Y, you know. Mm -hmm. I wanted to move on to the Aquanetas. Can we do that? Oh, yeah. Oh, we yeah. Can do that. So um, you're uh, the drummer in the Aquanetas, an all-girl yes. band, and you signed yes. uh, to Network and put mm -hmm. out your first record. Can you kind of talk about that process of, you know, getting the band together, but also getting signed and did you feel that going to a label as an all female band was different than if you would have went to the label as an all male band? So I just want to preface this with, I never thought of myself until I joined the Aquanetas. I never thought of myself as I'm a female musician. I just, yeah. in my yeah. head, I'm like, I'm a musician. Right. And even in high school, I was in bands with my best friend, Kendra, and we had like our first guitar player was like a 23 year old 
like metalhead rock and dude. And we were like 16 years old, high school girls. So, to, so it, he didn't care. Can we swear on this show, by the way, in case oh, I yes. swear? Oh, okay. Cause I was going to say he didn't give a shit. So anyway, <laughs> you can didn't. say any word except for swear. We don't okay. allow that one. <laughs> okay. So he did not give a shit and that we were girls and, you know, so anyway, it never really entered my mind. And I'd also like to say that I joined the Aquanetas and Cla when Claudine joined the Aquanetas, like they had already had rhythm, a rhythm section that was guys. So it was never intended to be an all female band. It just happened yeah. to be like four people come together and we're, we're girls. Um, and I, I, um, I don't think our A&R rep from network was, you know, like, Ooh, this is a great novelty thing. Like I, I know he generally genuinely loved our music and, you know, loved us and we loved him. And it was just, you know, network was great. I don't think they were thinking of us as like, you know, we're some freak show band, you know, cause we're girls. Um, I, I, there's, you know, there's look, there's so many stories I could tell. I think that for the most part, we would, we would kind of have to prove that we could play and then people would take us seriously. And we always did, you know, we always proved that we could play because we could, um, I, you know, there was, there was discrimination. Yes, there wasn't, there weren't that many all female bands around, you know, at the time, I think, you know, L7 was around the Lunachicks, um, you know, Thank goodness there was already the Go-Go's who were, who were, you know, like my all-time idols. That's why I started playing and Bangles and, you know, a lot of, you know, like even just, oh, the Frigs were around when we were, you know. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there was just, there was some, but there wasn't a lot. And I think that in general, you'd have to just, um, you know, Debbie once said, my singer, singer Debbie, once kind of said in an interview that I thought this was the truth it was sort of like people looked at you uh, in a way like that was a it was you, you were handicapped you were in a, you were, it was almost like that you know like you were in a band that and you had this sort of like automatic stigma of can they play or what's a girl playing the drums what is you know it, it was very weird to some people um, you know I, i'm kind of curious to know if when the Aquanetas were were getting signed and were breaking and all that kind of stuff. If you ever got, you know, either good or bad compared to the Bengals oh, or the Go-Go. Oh, that's all I they mean, all the time. That's yeah. literally the only thing they did. Like people could not, could not think of any other example. It was really yeah. weird to me. I mean, right. we sound nothing like the Go-Go's. We sound right. nothing like the Bengals. Um, but you know what I, that's, that's a, that's a cool thing that you asked that because I remember speaking to, I think it was Mike, was it Mark Marone? It was Mark Marone at, I think he was at a trade at that time. And he was interviewing me right before we went out on tour. And he's like, what, you know, what can people expect from your shows? What, what, what's your sound? And I'm like, well, you know, we're kind of like, just like a rock band, like the way the replacements are rock band. We just rock, you know? And, and and to me, that was like a fair comparison. We we are just a rock band. Like these dudes were these girls, <laughs> but it didn't matter. <laughs> but it's funny that nobody now there's like not one article you would read about us that was not comparing us to like the Go Go's or the Bangles. 
yeah. having sound, sounding nothing like them, really. Right. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting, too, that like those problems only got bigger when the Riot Girl movement happened. <laughs> and then it kind of all back backlogged on itself and it's yeah. kind of moved away now. But even now, all girl bands are still like, oh, the Go-Go's. You know, the Go-Go's are always the name check that everyone goes to yeah. if you're an all-female band. It's really yeah. interesting. It is. It is. Um, and it didn't help, I guess, that we were on IRS in the States, you know, we were, mm -hmm. <laughs> so we, and we were being booked by FBI. We were, it was the same group of people that we were working with too. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, do you think that that same group was potentially pushing that comparison, mm -mm. thinking it would sell? No. I don't think I don't think so. I don't think okay. consciously, at least. I I don't think. I mean, look, my did Miles Copeland maybe have it? Oh, I'm got I got the next Gogos. I mean, who knows? I don't really know. Um, I I don't. I never. When I spoke to Ian, and I was much closer to Ian Copeland, you know, because he was his office was right next to my office when we were at Virgin and Charisma. Like, right, we were. We would literally be like, he he's he was so awesome. I have one cute Ian Copeland story. He knew how much I loved REM and Peter Buck. And one day Peter Buck was up in his office and he called me on the phone. He's like, get over here. I have a surprise for you. And I walk into his office and Peter Buck was there. Like, yeah, like how nice is that that someone would do that, you know? Yeah. But, um, you know, so I don't know, maybe they thought that maybe they had in the, their minds that obviously, you know, like we had the Go-Go's now we're going to have, you know, this other girl band, but I don't think it was a, I don't think that's what they were uh, promoting us as. Let's put it that way. Okay, fair enough. You just never quite know. So you I never know. at least ask the question. Yeah, yeah. And you wouldn't be the first band that a record label misrepresented their sound in order to <laughs> get people to you know play the records. Yeah, no, you're right. No, I mean, look, it could have been. It could have been a little bit of that too. But um, I think people, I think people sort of just don't have an imagination from you know i don't know miles at all but from what i've heard about him i can easily see him being like hey we're gonna get the next go-go's this I, is gonna be it you know I, I don't know he's got a very interesting life story and i thank him for 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 whatever he did but he also did we didn't take his advice about something and i think he kind of always held a grudge about about a, us uh, for that and um so yeah, that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> but yeah, he was very strong-willed and very, um, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah so crazy. when you were on the road, you know, the record's out and you're on the road and or even before the record's out and you're touring, did you feel that it was trickier, more tricky to get, you know, bookings or gigs or get even paid, conversely, as opposed to labels, getting paid as much as other bands? I honestly don't know if uh, the pay thing, that's something that I... I wouldn't really okay. know, uh, but we, since we did have FBI booking us, we didn't really have that much trouble. Like we had a, oh, they cool. booked our US, our US tour and stuff. Um, you know, we weren't oh, after, I think, you know, when we got, I'm just trying to think we left and it was sort of like a mutual thing of leaving network and IRS. And we went, went and started doing our own gigs and we got another we would book ourselves and we got another booking agent for a while too. Um, you know, maybe it was a little more difficult at that time to, to get um, stuff. But then we also had a manager who, who hooked us up and we got, you know, a couple um, 
in UK tours and stuff. Like we played over there a while. So we were getting a lot of attention over there. Um, so I don't, I don't know if we were getting paid less. Um, I, yeah, I just, I really honestly don't know. I know one, I, we had some freaky situations trying to collect our money sometimes. And I don't know if this was, this would have happened to a guy band maybe, but um, Claudine was always the money collector. So she went into the back at this club in Jersey one time. And <clears throat> for whatever reason, the club owner just like decided he didn't want to pay us, even though we had a guarantee. So he, um, Claudine was like, but we have a guarantee, so you have to pay us. And he opens the drawer and he took out a gun and he put it on the table and he said, I'm not paying you. And she, I mean, she came out in tears and we were like, what happened? And she told us. And, but like, you know, I don't know, would it, would he have done that? To, like, what if she must've weighed 110 pounds wet, you know? So I don't know if it, if it was a big dude, would, would that guy have done the same thing? I don't know. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. And um, now you've got, there was a timeout and you're recording your own music. Um, yes. I know one of the things that you've mentioned is that uh, as, as an older person making records now, it's hard for women making music now to get their records heard in like yeah. this, this musical climate. Has that been been the case? Yeah. You know, what it is, it, what it is, is, is like there's so many categories and it's like, are, am I up and coming? No, I've been around for 35 years <laughs> making music. Am I a new artist? No, I'm not clearly not a new artist. Do I have the ambition to go out and do a huge tour and support my, no, thanks. I'm like really happy here with my cat and my husband. So I don't want, so, but I'm making the, what I think is sort of like the best music I've ever made in my career. So I want it to get out and I want it to get heard, but I, there's very, um, there's a lot of parameters that you have to fit into. And so I'm 55 years old and I have a super awesome single out, I think, you know, and how do I, I'm just trying to learn how I have to fit that in and try to get people to just hear it. Well, once they hear it, they really, it's like, it's yes, we want to play it, but it's very difficult. I don't know how much the female part plays into it. Um, but just as an artist in general. I think that being an older artist, it's a little bit, uh, an older established artist, you know, I'm not a household name. That's the thing. If I was Susanna Hoffs, like that's a different story. If you're Amy Mann, that's a different story. I'm not. So. You are to us. Well, gee, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're yeah. our very own Joni Mitchell. <laughs> And the good thing is, you know, I have, see, I have this promotion background, right? So I'm pretty relentless in a nice way, but I mean, I know how to do things um, in that way too. If, if you're, if you're someone who doesn't really know how to do the promotion game, well, you know, it's significantly harder, I think. I'm really curious to know you, you've got this solo album that you did in 2019. You've got a new single, you're working on another single, I yes. think, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So I'm just I'm just curious. You know, we drummers, we are band oriented. Do you miss being in a band? Um yes, but I sort of get I am a backup singer. So I I have a lot of bands that I sing with. Well, you know, pandemic has sort of put the kibosh on all that. Right. But that so that's really I really don't like to sing 
lead. I, I don't, it's not really, um, what I want to do now at this point, I really like being in a band, like you said, just being with people. And I'm in a couple wonderful bands, um, Cheryl Marshall, who sung back up on my record, um, and Deborah Bergs, um, when they play out, you know, I was, I've been playing with them and it's awesome, you know, like just to just be the backup singer. I also don't like, um, anymore having to wrangle a band and having to just, you know, yeah, that whole aspect of it. There are definite uh, pros to being a solo artist and having your own control over your own situation. But the yes. dynamic of a band, you know, I don't know that I would be able to exist without a band, you know, because yeah. I don't think I've got the, the the songwriting germ and the, you know, the, the strong marketing background and everything that would require. So mm -hmm. I'm just stuck being in a band. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's good. That's, you know, t t everybody has the thing that they do. Right. So that's, yeah. that's your thing. That's great. Yep. And I think too, if you just listen to music in a way, yeah. it's kind of like being in a, in a band, but in a sort of like standing in the booth, listening to the recordings way. Exactly. Like, the, like a guy from the Partridge family. That's what we all are. You know, us guys listening to music. <laughs> hey, if I never, if I ever get to a point where I don't have a band in my life, I've still got podcasting. <laughs> No, yeah. no, but I mean, like we all have things that we do that are related to music that don't necessarily, mm -hmm. you know, you don't need to be in a band. I mean, you're just talking to talking about music and listening to music, like you said, Rob. Right. Yeah. But with, with the pandemic, did you did that spur you? You think creatively to make more stuff, or just kind of think about what you wanted to do more with your with your music? Yeah. Yeah, Bob and I have been really creative during that. Like everyone keeps saying, God, you guys just keep cranking things out. And we do like he made his whole his whole record came about from the pandemic. Um, we've done not only do we do like recorded stuff, but we do our little um, we have this little project that we call Heart and Science. And we just put little cover songs out. and We put them up on YouTube and stuff like that. So we and now he has a brand new video coming out. Um called man on the brink that i star in the video okay <laughs> we are co-stars in the video nice um so that's going to be out literally in like a week or two but uh yeah so we've been doing a lot of things i think yes rob i think that it spurred us on to be really creative i mean we're, we're sort of in our house stuck together and we like it i mean we're we're not unhappy just to i'm kind of hermity anyway you know uh, i feel mm -hmm. like this is it's horrible to say, but I, to me, this, I, I don't mind just being kind of alone. <laughs> um, <laughs> I miss, and I love my friends. I really do. I'm not saying I don't, but it's like, it's not hard for me to be alone. I'm the same way. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm kind of reclusive and I like to hunker down and just focus on creative stuff. And yeah. And I, I subsist pretty well in that situation. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I was going to say yeah. I found people in general have either gone one of two ways, either their creativity completely dried up when the pandemic hit because it got in their head and yes. they felt depressed at the situation, or it spurred them on as it has, as you've just said, Stephanie, for yourself and for Bob. Um, yeah. I, I'm a raging extrovert and I've really struggled during all of this, but, um, you know, that's yeah. uh, each to their own. No, a lot of people mm -hmm. have, a lot of people have struggled like terribly. It's, mm -hmm. it's awful. 
I kind of went through both things. I I was only like, you know, completely shut down for three months and then I had to go back to work. Um, but during that time I thought, well, I can get a lot of my own stuff done, but I found that I, it got a little crippling. You know, I, I went through a yeah. period where I was like, oh my God, I can write and write and I can do all these kind of things and I can create projects and stuff. And then it would just get to be like, I can't even focus. I can't mm. even think. So I went through both channels and it's, wow. it was a very weird experience. Yeah. I think Not it was to like, get too therapeutic. No, but I think people's <laughs> moods, like definitely people mm -hmm. were up and down, up and down. And that's yeah. a lot. I mean, a, a lot of every people's story is, is your story. I mean, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah, I think the one interesting thing about the pandemic that's kind of coming out of this is that like the the books and movies and music that we're getting out of this, you know, in a way it's got that spirit of like 77 kind of going mm -hmm. um, just in terms of people can make what they want because the rules are different, you know. Um, and I think now the idea of making a record in your own home studio is not like this weird sort of freakish way that you'd look at it. I remember, you know, people used to say, you know, in the nineties, Oh, we made this record at our studio at home. And people were like, Oh boy. you know, yeah. <laughs> And they made this face and now that's gone, you know? Right. Oh yeah. Or, you know, the back of the days when people be like, Oh, I, I, I DJ and I made a mixtape in my, in my, in my bedroom. People were like, you know, they already knew what it sounded like before hearing it. Right. But that stigma's kind of gone by the pandemic, which is kind of cool. Well, yeah. To that point, Oh, sorry, Stephanie. No, you I was going to say, to, to that point, you think about something like the interview Stephen Wilson has been doing about the new Porcupine Tree album, and he's been talking about how he would lay down his guitar parts and the bass parts and upload them online, and then the other guys would pull them down, and Gavin, Gavin Harrison would build his drum parts based on what Stephen had written, upload that, and it's yeah. just fascinating how modernity and particularly during the pandemic has led to a whole new way of collaboration or at least yeah. that method of collaboration becoming a lot more normalized. Yes. Yeah. It's also too, um, and Steph would probably love this. It's also completely changed radio promotion, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're no longer sending out like 50,000 records to people. You're just like sending one email with a link yeah. going out to like 7,000 people. Right. Oh, yeah. um, it's like, where was this in the nineties? You know, I mean, um, you know, the yeah. amount of, the amount of stuff I get digitally now is so much more convenient than like the mobs of mail I used to get. Um, that I think, you know, radio promotion and radio marketing has also kind of been an area where the artist has kind of been able to take back with their own creativity. Oh, for sure. And, and I, I think, think that, yeah. Oh, I was going to say, like, I think that it's, you know, for me, it's always like, oh, it doesn't matter. Like one more email. I'm not paying postage on this email. Like I can just, I can keep sending it to more and more people. Yeah. It's fine. I'm not losing money. <laughs> it's a link. Yeah. From a business perspective, when margins are so thin these days, that can make a lot of difference to, mm -hmm. especially to independent artists, but also to the labels as well. Yeah. I mean, huge, huge. Yeah. And with like these are birds, you're able to make the record you want, when you want, how you want, without having to worry about I'm turning in an album about bird watching to a label. Are they going to put this out? You don't have to worry about any of that, which exactly. is got, which is very freeing. You know, I I I agree. I, I think that 
fact that, and like you said, like with the home studio, you know, you'd balk if you heard that, you know, in 20 years ago, but the technology is so good now, you know, you can have, um, you know, amazing sounding records with, with minimal expenditure. Um, but if you want to put the money into it, you're going to have a super amazing sound too. So, you know, mm -hmm. home studios are not, uh, home studios are just as good as regular studios, you know? I mean, the biggest example of that right now is the Billie Eilish albums. Yeah, you know? yeah. They just yeah. do it in their bedroom and, yeah. you know, look at what comes out. It's incredible. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also with something like Billie Eilish, Alan, there's a tendency towards kind of that lo-fi sound. Oh, that's true. I know. I know. And I know. I mean, the home studio for that even before all the uh, advances in technology <laughs> was ideal. And now you can do that and right. deliberately lo-fi it without, <laughs> you know, necessarily yeah. that just being the side product of it. You, you go in wanting a specific sound. It's really cool. All right. So we've got a couple of minutes left and Stephanie, I kind of want to do like a rapid fire thing with you. Oh my God. Okay. I'm going to just throw out some names and I just want you to kind of like, you know, react to, what you think about this uh, person and their playing and, you know, we'll just they, see what you have to say. Are they new bands? I don't know. No. I don't know. Okay. No. Okay. Okay. Ready? Yeah. Ringo Starr. <gasps> adore. I just adore him. And from this documentary, it's made me adore him so much more. I can't even tell. I can't even believe that he, he's like my favorite Beatle almost now. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Okay. Stuart Copeland. Uh <laughs> Like the best drummer in the world and my all-time idol. He is I, him, and, him and Gina Shock, like my all-time idols. Like he, the Police are my favorite band, and they were the first concert I ever saw. Oh, wow. Police and the Go-Go's, and that's why I started playing drums. So, Well, yes. coincidentally, Gina Shock was the next person on my list. <gasps> well, you just, now you know. And she, okay, here's a little Gina anecdote. She came to see us play when we were on tour in 1990. She came to the Whiskey. Her and... I think it was Jane, but I'm not a hundred percent sure, but, Oh, wow. Um, so she, I mean, of course that's my idol, right? She, she was unbelievable. She was so feisty and so cute and so cool. And mm -hmm. so I was very, very happy that she came to see us. Um, at the rock and roll hall of fame, um, in the, the after party, uh, I heard her on an interview pretty recently and she was talking about at the after party, um, Questlove just comes up to her and says, you know, when I was a kid and I was learning to play drums, I used to put beauty and the beat on and I would try to figure out all your parts. And she was like, I can fucking die now because <laughs> Questlove has told me that he learned from me. Yeah, you that's know? amazing. That's phenomenal. It is amazing. And that is exactly how I learned. I put beauty in the beat and ghost in the machine. And also mm. I love rock and roll by Joan Jett. There you go. And now I'm she friends with Ricky bird. So it's pretty funny how things come around. Yeah. Joan, Joan Jett was here yesterday playing a free show and I didn't even know about it. <gasps> no. Okay. So, okay. So I've got okay. a couple more go Larry, Mo Larry Mullins, Jr. <gasps> Also, like one of my favorite drummers, and of course, you too, and of course, so cute. And I met him at my boss snuck me into a party for them at America on 18th Street in New York City when we had a big party for Rattle and Hum. And I met him, and people dragged me over to, to him like three times to meet him because they knew I loved him, and it was so embarrassing. <laughs> That's amazing. But he was very okay. gracious. <laughs> Sheila E. Uh, oh. 
I have no words because she's so incredible. I could watch her play for hours. She's kind of like Carla Azar and her are just like, I could just watch those two play, Mm. you know, like, and not ever get bored because they're so amazing. And they're such, they're show. Well, Sheila E is especially super showy. Mm -hmm. And lastly, Stephanie Seymour. (laughs) Not any of those. those (laughs) Especially since I haven't played in about 20 something years now, but, um, that's why I do the demos and then I get real people to play. <laughs> like, you know, who played on there was a time, right? It's um, on my new single. It's, it's, it's Ira from not a surf and I'm wearing that shirt right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a surf shirt, but there, there it is. You go. That's awesome. Yeah. Right. So, um, and I know we talked about this too, kind of following up with what Alan did is. So during the time that I, that, that we've worked each known each other, you yes. worked a ton of records. Yes. Right? Yes. I'm going to start naming off artists. <laughs> oh, God. That you worked okay. the radio. And, I, and, I, and I, I tried to cherry pick them. I didn't, I didn't get into like some of the terrible stuff, right? Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and I, I just want to say, too, she was so nice because like mm-hmm. we'd come into the office and, you know, say hi and visit. We'd get a tour of the office. And then later I'd start bringing my girlfriend along, too. <laughs> and it was like. Like suddenly it's like, oh God, why am I, you know, why am I no. invading a poor woman's work day? But so these are some of the records that uh between okay. Virgin and Island and Charisma. Yeah. And just if you just want to say the first thing that comes to your mind, or if you have a story. Yes. All right, you ready? Okay. Jellyfish. <gasps> Sp- Spilt Milk, I still play. That's one of my favorite all-time records. I will actually, it's funny. I was talking to Bob about covering um what is it? in the breathless hush of 4 a.m.? What um uh, uh I can't think of the name of the song, but anyway, yes, one of my favorites all, of all time. That record because I remember you got really excited about that record when it came out. Mm-hmm, yeah, that, You're, it's yeah. A, pretty much like a uh like a masterpiece. I feel like yeah. Um, you ready? Yeah. Curve. Um, I remember uh, going to see Curve, and I had um just dyed my hair red, and it came out horrible, and and I remember having to go to that Curve show and looking like hell. And that's pretty much all I remember of Curve. Although they were cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, one of your island favorites and one of the, the very first record you worked to me, the Buck Pets. <gasps> Love them. Went on the road with them a few times. Went to Portland and Seattle with them and hung out with them a lot. Uh, they rocked. And it was really a shame that they never, you know, got huge because they... You know, they were kind of a little precursor to the grunge kind of thing. I feel like more mm-hmm. heavy in a way. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Love them. Um, Kirsty McCall. Oh, I, you know, what a, a super voice. And um, I, 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 I don't know if I ever met Kirsty, but I do just remember having really good memories of like seeing her and, you know, live and, and also, um, she did sing that with, she was on that Pogues record I worked, right? Uh, if I Should Fall From Grace. She sung yes. the new Fairy Tales of New York. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yes. And Great ironically, the, the Pogues were on that on that list. <laughs> well, there you go. I know I um, that's the only record I got number uh, as a number one on the CMJ charts. I, that, yeah. that went to number one. So I remember that because I was celebrating for that. Oh, I have a great Pogue story, really quick. There we want. go. 
<laughs> they, I had a promotion day with them at the Gramercy Park Hotel. <laughs> and it was in the morning. Never do anything with the Pogues in the morning because they are already drunk from the night before. <laughs> and then they are still drinking. So it, it was a it was a pretty interesting day. You I got to say, I'm the... not surprised to hear that. <laughs> I'm not surprised at all. You got me into the Pogue show in St. Louis. I think right? I... And yeah. you got you you fixed uh Dave and I up from the station with backstage passes, mm -hmm. right? So I had all of my signatures from the band. Shane was the only one I didn't have. And I was standing, literally walked by, and the tour manager said, Shane, and he literally had to lean against the doorway. <laughs> and then somebody pulled the pen for him out of his pocket, and then he signed it, and then he gave me a giant hug and licked my ear. <laughs> No. All right, then. and then I called Amazing. you the following week about that, and I said, "Hey, um, the Pogues were great. They were one of the best bands I've ever seen." And Shane McGowan licked my ear, and he said, "Of course he did." <laughs> of course um, he did. I, I also wanted to ask you uh, another band, and since we have people from Atlanta here, it makes sense. We'll talk about an Atlanta band, Driving and Crying. Driving and Crying. Nice. Yes. Oh, nice. Well, you know, I have to say, of all bands I ever worked. They were my favorite and not just musically, but people wise. And I went on the road with them too. They let me come in their tour van down South and I was driving with them and crying. No, um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but uh, really mystery road was just the pinnacle of, of great memories for me. And it was like the best time of my career. I have to say in, Everything about that record, everything about, I mean, I've been to, I went to the Midwest with them. I went to the West Coast with them. I did so many shows. I went, you know, around to so many shows. And, you know, I actually, Rob, did I see you dur maybe during yes, that tour? Did. I know it. Yeah, because we were in yeah. St. Louis. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, anyway, they're just, my, that was my, they are my favorite band that I, I, I ever worked. I mean, maybe you two might take the cake there too, but. Sorry, Anthony. I know everything comes back to you too, but really though, you know, driving to crime are just like my favorite. That's cool. I remember, I remember too, you sent me this record and you're like, I don't know whether you're going to thank me or not, but please listen to it. And if you can chart it, I'd be really happy. And it was the Enigma record. Oh yeah. That was a really interesting record, right? I mean, it was sort of yeah. like way out, like left field kind of record, yeah. but it did it, I mean, it obviously was huge, not just college radio, but everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and then the last one, and I'll swear I'll let you go. Um, because I, I know you were, you were excited because they were in the office one day when I came to see you, mm -hmm. um, you worked the blur record. Yeah. And you got my copy of the universal, the single, I, I didn't know they were there. And you're like, you want to say hi to Damon? And I'm like, <laughs> no, I don't. Um, wow. <laughs> and we were kidding. And wow. Yeah, but you worked you worked like those first couple Blur records. Uh, yeah, it was I think you know um, that was interesting because I I was such a Blur fan like before like with Park Life I love that so much yeah. and then they got we signed them or whatever and got to work them and I actually became really really tight with their manager Neve she became a, a friend that I was friendly with for years and I kind of you know for a little while I was friendly with um, Graham and. Uh, uh, yeah, it was funny. I, I remember taking him out to a club in the city one night, like this cool, like modish kind of club. And 
they they were nice. They you know they were they were interesting. Like they had the British kind of standoffish thing, but they weren't standoffish. If you know what I mean, like they had yeah. that, they projected that, but they are they're all cool guys, and and I I really loved their their albums that we yeah. we worked. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for humoring me and Alan. With <laughs> Anthony, do you want to quiz her about anything? Thanks for not asking me any hard questions. <laughs> if you, Stephanie, if you have any questions about Bono or any, anything about Bono being a jerk. <laughs> I was going to say the, yeah. the only uh, the only thing since the alternate name for this podcast is Modern Sparks Ecology is what do you oh. think of Sparks? Oh, <laughs> I do. I am a Sparks fan, but you know, Rob and I were talking about this. Like, I think I like Sparks as sort of the average listener like Sparks. Mm -hmm. I know them. I know the singles. And I know, of course, uh, you know, like cool places because of Jane and stuff like that. So I, but I think they're so cool and I cannot wait to see the documentary because that I know is going to suck me into the, you know, the yeah. whole rabbit hole again. Oh, it's, have you not seen it yet? No, I haven't seen oh. it. Oh, see, I'm kind of the same way. I remember, I remember them from like the Giorgio Moroder era mm -hmm. and from the early MTV stuff. And that's about all that I knew. So it was really this documentary that kind of like yeah. reconnected me to them and sort of introduced me to the, yeah. the broad spectrum of their career that I, a lot of it I didn't know about. I just knew those few little things back from like 79 to 82, that kind of era. Yeah. That yeah. MTV era. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Jane Jane Weedlin is in the documentary a fair amount. Yeah. I mean, she talks That's quite a lot. And um, they didn't play Cool Places on this tour, but I've had no. Cool Places stuck in my head for like the last 48 yeah. hours. <laughs> I, it's yeah. just going round and round and round and round. It's driving it's... my girlfriend insane because I'll <laughs> yeah. come in the kitchen and I'll just be like, Cool, you know, cool, just, cool. Yeah. I'll just, <laughs> yeah. I've been, you know, Anthony, in a related note, I've been. Janet's been ready to kill me because like literally every time we go anywhere now since the show, I'm like my baby's taking me home, <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, I, think, I, I, yeah, I do ahead. the same thing, except I will alter the lyrics. I've sung my baby's making some bread oh, um, I'll, in the I'll kitchen. My baby's baking a cake. It's driving oh, home. Totally insane. Oh, I'm going to start doing that too. That's gonna be oh, that's great. Anything with the same number of syllables works. I promise you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm totally going to do that. You know, um, I'm so glad I saw Sparks, and I know Steph. We talked about uh, I saw Nick Cave the next night, mm -hmm. and um, you and I talked about that. But like, I just mm -hmm. love the fact that like you've been doing this for 35 years, and you still have the passion for it mm -hmm. on like so many levels. It's like it's so incredible. Oh, uh, well, yeah. I'm, I mean, I guess all of us, right? I mean, we just yeah. love music, right? I mean, there's nothing. Um, when I discovered bird watching, I, I feel like that was the other passion that I knew I would just always be able to have and be able to do. But like music, it was the first thing for me that was just like life changing. And I knew the instant I got hooked that I would just be doing it forever in some way. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, Stephanie, thank you so, so very much for joining us. Thank I you so thoroughly, much too. thoroughly enjoyed this hour talking with you. And I awesome. hope that Thank you. we'll be able to convince you to come back on again sometime. Yeah. You, you don't know? have to convince me. I'm I'm there. Hey, right, um, so you're so you're our new regular co-host every <laughs> week, be. right? Okay, good. So really quickly too, do you want to tell people where they can find you on the interwebs? And oh yes, the interwebs. Well, you can go to you know I have a Bandcamp page, so every, you can find me on Bandcamp just under Stephanie Seymour. Um, 
also the regular like Spotify. And I also have a therearebirds.com site. And you can also find, I have a page devoted to the new song on that website. So all these kind of usual places, I suppose. Instagram, I'm there underscore R underscore birds. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) No, really guys, thank you. This was so fun. And I, and I'm, and I loved it. And I, I hope I don't sound like I'm in an echo chamber. (laughs) You don't. (laughs) Stephanie, this has been an absolute delight and it's been wonderful to get to know you and and hear some of your experiences and uh, about your life on both sides of the music industry. Thank you so much. Great. I love it. He's going to okay. sneak into your house and break all your U2 albums. But <laughs> oh, I'm not. <laughs> we, always, we, we have this rivalry that's not even real. <laughs> right. <laughs> all right. We will be back. Well, two of us will be back next week because, Anthony, you will be in the UK. I will. First um, time in five years. I'm, so I'm going to miss the next few weeks. Yeah. We're going to miss you. But I'll miss you guys. Uh, Rob and I will be back next week talking about a wrap up of the 2022 Grammys. Yes. So we will see you then. Everybody have a great week. Take care and we'll see you next time. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tea Public store which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.